Welcome to the Cold Steel Podcast, hosted by Amir Farouk and myself, Chad Ball. We consider it an absolute privilege to bring you guests from around the world who are truly experts in their craft. Our mission is to offer you a combination of not only masterclasses on clinical surgery topics, but also insights into achieving personal growth, productivity, and fulfillment as both a surgeon and perhaps more importantly, as a human. This week, we caught up with Dr. Elijah Dixon, a liver and pancreas surgeon at the University of Calgary, to talk about mindfulness and meditation. Dr. Dixon really opened our eyes on how those practices might be helpful to us, both inside and outside the operating room. We also asked Dr. Dixon about what it was like to be the past president of both the Americas Hepatopancreatical Biliary Association, otherwise known as the AHPBA, as well as the Canadian Association of General Surgeons, also known as CAGS. As usual, the links are in the show notes. Can you tell us where you grew up and where you did your training? Sure. Th- and thanks thanks for having me. It's a real honor and a pleasure to be here with you guys. Um, I was born in Winnipeg, Manitoba, and I grew up in Winnipeg. Um, uh, grew up just outside the city on five acres uh, in what's called Birds Hill, just north of Winnipeg. Um, pretty normal sort of upbringing, whatever normal is, um, went to public schools, went to the University of Manitoba and did a undergraduate degree in um, science, then did uh, medicine at the University of Manitoba. And then um, almost on a whim, ranked University of Calgary general surgery higher than University of Manitoba, didn't expect to end up here. Um, match, came to Calgary, did my residency here. Uh, married a Calgarian, um, and so uh, Calgary became home. Went um, after residency to Toronto and did a HVB transplant fellowship, and then went to Boston and did a graduate degree. And then came back and started working, and have been working here in Calgary ever since. Dr. Dixon, what was it that drew you to uh, being a hepatobiliary surgeon and a liver surgeon? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, these things always seem clear once you're once you're through them. Um, and you try to go back and put yourself in your shoes and remember why you liked what you liked. Um, I think honestly, it was a combination of um, people I worked with, so mentors that I worked with, and um, I remember being in fourth year of medical school and working with a. Um, general surgeon, HVB surgeon in Winnipeg named Jeremy Lipschitz. And um, I mean, it's hard to say that you really understand what's going on when you're a fourth year medical student, especially in the operating room in terms of the operations that are being done. But I was attracted to um, the operations, I think, and and just attracted to, um, I think, the command of the material that Dr. Lipschitz had. So he just was a impressive person. And, and I think that a lot of times when we're trainees, we get attracted or um, excited by an area because of people that we work with. And maybe we don't even realize that that's a big part of it, but I think that was the start. And then I did my residency. Um, and I, honestly, I liked most things that I did in residency, I thought, you know, as I went through them, they're all pretty interesting and 
I could see myself doing them. And then I did HVB uh, surgery again as a more senior trainee when I think I understood things a bit better and spent a lot of time with Francis Sutherland. And um, again, you know, really attracted to the uh, technical aspects of the operations. Um, and just the um, comfort and familiarity with all of surgery that it seemed that HVB surgeons had. So I think those things attracted me to it. Um, I like the patients. They're pretty sick. And at that time, that didn't seem onerous to me. I, I think as I've gone through, um, you get a better appreciation for how that can be at times uh, tiring, but um, usually you know, really rewarding as well. So um, yeah, the, te the technical aspects of the operation, the complexity of the patients and the, the surgeons that I worked with just, um, I think had a real command of, uh, of, of surgery and uh, those things attracted me to it. Like I said, it's hard to remember exactly why, why you liked it. Cause I think your memory changes a little bit, but I think those are the main reasons. You know, you ascended to uh, the pinnacle of a number of different surgical societies, both national and international, in particular, the presidency of, uh, of CAGS here in Canada, and then the HPBA um, throughout the entire Americas. Uh, I'm curious, first of all, in exploring that, um, what puts you on that track or that pathway to, to pursue those two uh, avenues in particular? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. Again, you sort of look back and I think a lot of, a lot of times you probably don't even know why some of these things happened. Um, I want to tell you that it's based on merit and it's because I deserved it, but I don't think that that's, that's the truth. I think that for a lot of these things, um, again, it's um, a little bit of opportunity. Um, so being in the right place at the right time, I think, it's having mentors that are um, advocates for you and looking out for you. Um, so for the Canadian Association of General Surgeons, I think honestly, um, I don't know this for sure, but I think that uh, Jan Pasika, who is, who is one of my mentors and, and who was um, heavily involved with KEGS at that time, um, I think spoke with Robin McLeod about uh, me and suggested that I, you know, might be someone that would be worth getting involved. And um, I think advocacy by Dr. Pasika with Dr. McLeod probably led uh, to me being offered um, being the program chair at a, at a very early stage in my career. I remember when uh, they asked me, you could see some of the people um, in the organization were surprised, I think, because uh, I was quite junior at the time. Um, so I benefited, I think, from from mentorship and and uh, and help from uh, people that were looking out for me. I think um, with the HPBA, it was similar. Um, you know, I I had said, yeah, I'd be happy to be involved in any way that that I can be, and they put me on the research committee, which um, it's an important committee, but it's not. Um, by any means a, a fast track to leadership in the organization. And um, at that time, Nick Vothe was the, was the chair of the research committee. Um, and I, I mean, I took it seriously. And, 
And I went to all the research committee meetings, which were twice a year. And back then everything was in person. And I think for two or three meetings in a row, the only people in the room were me and, uh, and Nick. And there was probably 10 people on the committee. Um, so the, the meetings became uh, a coffee between me and uh, Nick Vote and, and, and Nick asked me to help him with things. And I think I did an okay job and, and Nick ascended through the organization. And I think again, Nick's mentorship and advocacy um, really helped set me on that path along with a few other people um, in the organization uh, that, that helped along the way as, as well. I think the other big thing is that, um, and, and I think that that there's an overemphasis on us expecting people to have a plan for the future and know what they're gonna do. We always uh, seem to ask people, what's your three, five, seven, 10 year plan? I remember getting asked that when I was a medical student in surgery interviews. And I mean, it's sort of a silly question. I don't, I don't know how you can answer that when you have no idea what residency is really going to be like, and you have no idea what, um, what you're uh, going to like and not like. Um, and there's an expectation that you have this grand plan, um, which I, I mean, I think it's good to, to have, to have some plans, but um, I think you got to be flexible and you have to be open to opportunity. And I think um, part of that is is saying yes to opportunities, especially opportunities that you might not have um, had planned or expected. And for me, in both of those cases, it was um, you know me saying yes to things that definitely were not in my plan. I didn't I didn't plan to become the program chair at CAGS, which then leads to you know positions on the executive and to, and to the presidency. Um, so yeah, I think that, that there's a tendency for people to wanna to have everything planned out, maybe not uh, see opportunities as opportunities um, and probably say yes a bit more than uh, I think um, we tend to do. I think sometimes we tend, if it's not in our plan, we're not gonna do it. And I think that you miss a lot of opportunities and. I mean, it's impossible to, to plan the future. You, if you if you sort of go back and, and look at every year and, and and look at what the predictions in the news are, like what are what are going to be the big news stories next year? It, it's almost 100% that they're wrong. Like no one predicts a pandemic. No one predict, predicts a war in the Ukraine. These things are are um, things that happen, and you got to be prepared to to um, adjust on the fly and and see opportunity where maybe um, you might not have expected to see an opportunity. So um, yeah, just benefiting from mentorship and and probably saying yes sometimes um, when uh, when it wasn't obvious why I would say yes. Tell, tell us about what was like the most sort of meaningful aspects of being part of the organizations and, and also being the presidents and, and the head of the organizations. Yeah, I mean, so there's lots of things. I think it's it's definitely exciting and interesting to to sort of be on the inside and see how things work and to, in a large way, be on the forefront of the organization and, and in these cases, the specialties. You really get to see, you know, what's up and coming, um, where are the um, areas of, of sort of um, debate and conflict and where are the questions um, and having 
some input into um, planning and directing, you know, how things are going to go forward. When you're planning the annual meeting, I mean, that's a, it's a big deal. And, and, you know, what gets put in the various sessions and the plenary sessions, th those are um, important questions and they really affect, I think, the specialty and, and the development of the specialty and how things move forward. So all, all of that is, is, it's not hard to get excited about that and get excited about being involved in the planning of that and, and navigating those issues and the debates around those issues. Um, probably, honestly, the most rewarding part of being part of those organizations, though, is um, the relationships that that you make and the friendships that you that you that you get, um, especially you know the the AHPBA, you meet people from all over North Central and South America, and um, yeah, it's just uh, it's it's eye opening. Um, you 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 meet people that are incredibly interesting. You meet people that you know you've read their textbooks and you become friends with those people and you realize that we're all a lot more similar than we are dissimilar and that um, people are working towards the same thing. People's intentions are generally good um, and you really develop lifelong friendships. Uh, so yeah, that was, that's probably the most fulfilling thing, honestly, the friendships that, I, that I've made in both those organizations. Um, and they're, you know, they're friendships that, they're not just sort of professional work friendships. Like these are people that you become good friends with. So um, that aspect I think is very rewarding. And, and then that leads you to, you know, being asked to, to visit different places and see how people do things differently in South America and in, in uh, Argentina, um, Colombia. Like you, you, you see how people do things, you learn a lot. Um, you interact with um, hundreds and hundreds of people. And uh, that for sure, I think, is the most rewarding, fulfilling part of being involved in those organizations. Dr. Fix, I mean, you were part uh, or the, the president of both the HPBA and CAGS. And those are two, in my mind, very different organizations in many ways um, with very different um, focuses and, you know, you mentioned this fact that, you know, putting together the annual meeting, uh, thinking about kind of which direction the organization goes is so, is so important. How do you think about, like, what what was sort of different about the roles of uh, those two organizations? And when you become the president, what, what sort of things went through your mind when you were trying to decide, okay, what's going to be my sort of focus as my, during my tenure? And how do I set the stage for... The organization moving forward. Yeah, those are good questions. Um, I, so, I mean, there's there's differences, but there's there's probably more similarities than you than you'd guess between the organizations. I think that both of them, um, a lot of it depends on the length of the presidency. So, if someone is a president for two or three years, that, that's a really significant commitment. And in two or three years as president, you can start some really big initiatives and or make some big changes and expect to be able to make that happen um, because you're going to be president for, for two years or three years. Um, 
when you're president for a year, it, it, it's it's hard to to make huge changes, and 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 truthfully, the organization resists big changes when people are constantly coming and going on a one-year term, and so you really want to have some continuity in terms of the plan from president to president. And so, you know, in both organizations, there's a long period where you're sort of working together as, you know, usually you're going to be the secretary or the treasurer first, and they're going to get a good look at you there, that way. And then depending on, on, you know, how things go and, and how you work with the, the leadership, then you potentially be considered as president-elect or president-elect second in the case of CAGS. So there's a long lead up to becoming president. And I think that that helps in terms of continuity and making sure that there's not huge changes in direction, which is both a good and a bad thing. So, you know, the, the, the executive is, is usually all on the same page and they have the same vision for the future or close to the same vision. It's bad in that it's difficult to make big changes or to initiate, you know, new, new um, initiatives. And, and, and honestly, sometimes the organization doesn't need that every year. Um, it just needs stability. And um, you, you'll, you sometimes will see that where you'll look and see a new initiative and, and, and you'll wonder, you know, why is this? And does this make sense? And I think sometimes it's, it's, it's a feeling of um, wanting to leave your mark. You know, people will come in for their presence and they want to do something special, which is good, but um, you know, it's maybe not always needed. So it's a long-winded answer to your question. I think with CAGS, I mean, I think that part of general surgery's problem has always been our name. Um, general surgery sort of <laughs> it doesn't imply that we're subspecialists that are highly trained and so I sort of wanted to put a little bit of focus on um, on us defining our, our ourselves as as real subspecialists and and really being proud of who we are and what we do and and again trying to bring the group together as opposed to the um, continual sort of uh, fragmentation of general surgery where you get groups breaking off all the time, which um, again is is both good and bad. And we could talk about that for a long time. For the HPBA, um, you know, I, I, again, I didn't I didn't want to make any massive changes because I think that organization. I I followed some really great leaders. Uh, I followed um, Bill Jarnigan and uh, Will Chapman, and and then had heavier Lindor as well and all of them are exceptional leaders and I think had similar visions so it didn't really require any big changes in 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 path I am um, I wanted to help develop a clinical trials network and so I asked Mike D'Angelica to to start an ad hoc committee that would bring together various um, institutions across the Americas to to work together in clinical trials and that was sort of, I think, my small contribution, but mostly just keeping um, things along the same path and and uh, and and in order um, was was the job, and I think that's what I tried to do. It's it's difficult. I mean, we had um, 
issues a few years before I was president with the management company. And I've seen it in other organizations where there's significant problems with the management company. And especially when you have a one-year president, the inertia is against making a change. You really don't want to make a change in the management company when you're the president because it's it means you're going to, or you're potentially going to have a, a difficult presidency, a lot of work. Um, and uh, so the tendency is maybe not to deal with um, issues that need to be deal, dealt with. And uh, in, in my case, I, again, I was lucky I followed uh, Will Chapman and Bill, and um, they made the hard decision uh, during their presidencies to change the management company, which uh, was definitely the right decision, but a difficult decision. So it, it's it's hard in a one-year presidency. I think that that one year is attractive because the commitment's not onerous. A two or three-year presidency is very onerous because you know if you're president-elect for two years and you're president for two years and you're past president for two years, you're talking about you know more than half a decade. So it's a big commitment. There's there's definitely pros and cons to um, to one versus two or three year presidencies. You've not been uh, quiet necessarily about your uh, increasingly uh, strong, I think, passion as a fair word for meditation and mindfulness. Um, I was wondering if you could define for our audience who maybe is not totally familiar, particularly with the definition of mindfulness, what that means to you and and, and how meditation and mindfulness um, sort of work together. I think that mindfulness is really just learning to um, have very focused attention and be aware um, of what's happening uh, in your mind and being able to apply yourself uh, in a very focused way. I think that um, meditation is, it, it can be the same thing, but meditation also sort of gets at sort of the nature of reality and, and having a deeper look at um, the nature of reality and um, our relationship to reality, the sense of self and the ego, and um, sort of uh, understanding, um, you know, non-duality and 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 the fact that we might be all part of um, the same thing, um, and and having an appreciation of that. So it's it it can definitely be more, and it sort of gets at I think deeper sort of existential questions and and looks at. Um, at the nature of reality, whereas mindful mindfulness is really training your mind um, to be able to um, be very uh, uh, focused and have focused attention. I mean, we we as surgeons, if you were to say to me, what would people be surprised about in terms of our training? I think that there's two things that we do a terrible job of of training uh, surgeons at. One is um, the business and financial side of surgery. It's almost a taboo in medical school and residency to discuss that. Um, and then you're done your residency and you're expected to go out and start a practice and um, develop a, a business. 
um, and you've really got no training, zero. And and there's you know many many different models of of business for surgery, and we get trained in none of them. And so we do very badly at that. And I think we also do very badly at um, understanding how our minds work, um, being aware of how our minds work, and and being aware of um, uh, you know how we regulate ourselves. Surgery is stressful. Um, it can be emotional, and I think that you you see it. I, I mean, I know you guys you train similar places and times as I have. You've seen situations where people you've worked with have not have not had good control of their of their um, emotions and their and their um, yeah emotions and 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 control of their their attention. And um, it's not surprising because I don't think that we really get trained in that. We do a terrible job of, of training um, surgeons about their mind and about um, mindfulness and how to be focused and how to focus on what's important and how to not be overtaken by emotion, especially at the most critical you know, part of, of your day or the most critical part of an operation. So I think it's things that um, we we don't get trained well in, and we 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 do need to do better. Surgeons, we just aren't trained to think in that way, or to think about the way we think, or to really like take that bird's eye view of ourselves in that role. And it really is a very stressful, in some ways, very chaotic environment. You know, can, especially when things are going wrong. How did you get into this? Like, was that was it something that was formally introduced to you? Was that a practice that you you kind of always picked up or was, was there someone close to you that that was doing it and you sort of took it uh, from them? How did you get uh, sort of introduced to the topic? Yeah, so I, I mean, I never really, um, it wasn't strange to me. My dad um, meditated my whole life. He did transcendental meditation. And so I, I think I was always aware of it and, um, it was always sort of in the background and I think I was probably predisposed to it because of my dad. Um, having said that, I didn't really understand it and I didn't, I didn't understand why you would do it. Um, you know, it was just a fact of life. Dad does this. Um, and you sort of, you know, as you get older, you wonder why you would want to sit quietly and, and not do anything for an hour once or twice a day. It seems like a bizarre waste of your time. Um, and then, um, you know, as I, uh, once I got started and I was working, um, and as you know, cause you're going through right now, probably the most stressful time of, of your life and your career is when you first start your practice. Cause coincidentally, you're usually moving, you're trying to start a business that you're not really trained to do. You're trying to, you know, establish yourself as a surgeon. You're trying to still learn how to operate to an extent because you know you keep learning for a long time um you're trying to integrate with your partners um you may be trying to get grants and write papers and establish yourself that way and then you're probably developing some sort of relationship or marriage and or having a family and in my case um i think i started thinking about these things when my marriage started to break up and i um I wouldn't say I was 
I was depressed, but I think for the first time in my life, um, I wasn't, I didn't wake up like happy every day. And so you start thinking, um, you know, you know, starting asking yourself some, some deeper questions and some existential questions. And I remember um, reading a book by Eckhart Tolle, The Power of Now, and it just, it just sort of struck me. It was simple. Um, uh, his message was simple, but I mean, he, you know, basically we spend most of our energy worrying about the future or the past. And that if you living in the moment pre and, and you're very present, there's usually not a problem right now. Most of your problems are created by your mind worrying about the future or the past. So that, that sort of started it. And then um, I got onto Sam Harris um, and that was just sort of, uh, luck. I was, I think, um, I think I was listening to Jordan Peterson podcast and they asked him who his biggest adversary was. And I think he said he didn't have an adversary, but the smartest person he had debated was Sam Harris. And I'd never heard of him. So I went and looked up Sam Harris and then that took me to his app. So he's got an app called Waking Up. And I mean, it's just, uh, it's the most amazing um app it it, it um, for the small price that you pay and you don't even have to pay for it if you can't afford it he'll give it to you for free it covers um, so many things so many um, areas in terms of um, meditation mindfulness uh, leading in uh, a sort of um, you know an informed well-intentioned life he talks to you know he regularly talks to um experts in all sorts of different fields related to the, to those issues. Um, and it's a meditation app. And so um, I got into that and then, yeah, it just took off from there. I, I mean, I can't, I can't say enough about, uh, about his app. It's, it's amazing. And um, yeah, it, it, it was what really sort of got me really going down the path. I will be sure to link that uh, that material to the to the show notes for the show for the for the listeners. Um, I hope it's not overstated, and I hope you're not mad for me saying this, Elijah. But you know, you you're you're a savage in the hospital clinically. You you work like a savage, and you operate uh, a ton, and you're just a super duper busy dude. So I really want to know how you integrate the practice of mindfulness, sort of day to day, in these crazy days uh, when you're in the building. How do you do that? Yeah, no, that's a good question. Um, so I think, I mean, part of part of um, my attraction to it was that I think I was fortunate in that, you know, so, you know, when people get really upset and, and emotional, often they don't even know they're upset or emotional. They're so taken over by their emotions. And I think I've always been lucky in that I've always sort of had an awareness of that. Like, like you said, Amir, I've had that bird's eye view. I've always been able to look and say, okay, you're getting really upset or, you know, you might not be handling the situation very well. And so that, I think that helped me become aware that that was important. And just, just knowing that, I think when those situations arise at work, I think um, I'm able to often step back. It's still hard. Um, and you can still get caught up in the, in, in, in emotions, both, you know, when you're dealing, dealing with a difficult situation with the patient, or you're dealing with a difficult administrative issue, 
Um, but when you are able to sort of step back and become aware of your emotions and view and view them from an, from an external viewpoint, it really dissipates them and they don't take over. So I think at work with mindfulness, the awareness that, that that's important um, ha has definitely helped me and made me be more aware of it and probably made me be more aware of it than I ever was before and, and, and sort of try to purposely view myself from that perspective often. Um, you know, you, you, you would think when things are going badly in the operating room that the most in control person in the room is the surgeon and it should be, but as you guys know, that's not always the case. And I think that it, you know, we, we need to be that person and, and people need to be trained to be able to, to do that in terms of the meditation. So, I mean, on Sam's app, there's a, a 10 or 20 minute med daily meditation you can do. Um, and I'll do that pretty much every day, a 20 minute uh, uh, with his, uh, with his um, daily meditation. He also has a whole bunch of other meditation experts coming at meditation from slightly different um, angles and disciplines. And I'll, I'll often, um, you know, listen to them and, and get into them and, and do some of those meditations. I, I've, I've done a fair number by a guy named Henry Shukman, a, a Zen Buddhist who, who um, you know, is, is really outstanding on, on, on his app. And then I'll just I'll just meditate myself. Um, the thing that limits me is is fatigue. Um, I'm sure you guys can both relate to that. That sometimes if you sit down quietly, especially if you close your mind, close your eyes, the next thing you know, you're you're waking up half an hour later, 45 minutes later. So um, I'll often do it at night, but I'll take a nap sometimes for 30 minutes when I get home from work. And then I'm wide awake and then I'll, I'll, I'll meditate um, after I've had a nap. Um, and I just, I make it a priority. Like I, I, I do it probably before I do a lot of other things um, in my life that I used to do, you know, when I wasn't at work, it's, it's definitely a, a priority. Having said that, there's lots of days when, when I don't do that because I'm, I'm too busy or I'm too tired. You know, we have this, I, or at least I had this preconceived notion of sometimes of meditation as being this very like kind of esoteric, hocus pocus kind of uh, practice that people do. But, you know, to hear you describe it, it's, it's clearly a very integral part of, of your life. And I, and I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's not, not even just about surgery, but it's really about like thinking about your life and, and our purpose and what the meaning of life is. And I feel like so often those really important questions don't, we don't even ask ourselves these. We just get lost in the the day-to-day, -day, like just mon mundanity of it all. And we just keep going down these, these paths. And we don't even think about where we're going. For Dr. Dixon, for someone who doesn't do meditation on a regular basis, what do you recommend being the best way to kind of get into it? Is it, is it using um, that waking up app as, uh, as the, best way to kind of get into it uh you know we, we interviewed um jillian horton who wrote a great book uh called everything is perfectly fine uh where she actually uh talks about her going away to a retreat uh on mindfulness and meditation is that something you'd recommend how do you to the uninitiated how do you get into mindfulness and meditation 
Yeah, that's a good question. And I think it, there's no there's no single right answer. Um, I personally think that an app like Waking Up's Sam Harris's app is a really nice way to start because he has a series of lectures that sort of go through the logic around meditation, um, talks about mindfulness, talks about meditation, talks about, um, you know, the effects that it can have on your life in terms of um, calming you, being less controlled by your emotions. And then, you know, uh, as you get more into the meditation aspect of it, um, you know, he does have a lot on there about sort of um, enlightenment and, um, you know, making sort of uh, understanding the nature of reality more, understanding non-duality, um, and, you know, how best to to practice towards that. Um, I think that a lot of times, especially if that's your focus, meditation can become about striving for that. And I, and I think he addresses that better than a lot of people. Um, and, and that, you know, any meditation is good. You don't necessarily have to sit by yourself um, in a retreat for in a silent retreat for a week or a month or three months. I think going on a retreat um, is outstanding. I think that that's a steep way to get into meditation though if you haven't meditated and you go to that sort of a retreat um it could be um frustrating um and expecting a lot from yourself so i i think that there's yeah huge benefit in in in, in doing retreat um but i think as a means to starting out i i personally think his app is amazing and he he has a lot on there about the logic of of mindfulness and meditation that I think for people that are not familiar with it and think it's sort of weird hocus pocus um that that it, it's a really nice way to go through it and it I mean he's he's a scientist he's he's got a PhD in neuroscience so you know he really goes through it with a in a, in a critical sort of way and explains things really well he's a He's uh, an amazing um, orator, so you know you really understand things well. So that I think that's the that personally, based on my experience, that would be a great way to start. You mentioned a few times now duality. What's duality and non-duality? Well, I mean, the duality is how pretty much all of us live, which is um, with a strong sense of the ego or self and that everything outside of us is outside of us. So the duality is, you know, subject object, um, us, the ego, and then everything outside of us. And if you, um, you know, common theme as you, as you um, listen and read and um, hear about people that have had these en enlightenment experiences the one of the big common threads is is the uh non-dual nature of of the world that really we're all part of the same thing and we're all part of um 
our reality is 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 one big reality um and the, the ego is really um a construct that, that that we create for ourselves there's a great uh ted talk um about someone that had a a stroke in her default mode network of her brain which is the area of your brain that gives you your sense of self or your ego um her her name is jill bolte taylor and she again she's also a scientist she gives a great short i think it's 10 or 15 minute ted talk she had a stroke of her default mode network and describes what it's like to not have that functioning and um basically dis describes non-duality and her description is very, very similar to these, um, you know, meditation uh, masters or people that have had these enlightenment experiences and how they describe um, non-duality and, and, and their perception of reality um, without having a stroke, obviously, just through meditation. And uh, yeah, it's, 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 it's worth listening to. It's very, very interesting. And she can describe it much better than I can. Uh, I'm curious how this practice has spilled over into other aspects of your life, um, maybe beyond the operating room. I mean, the, the biggest, and I'm sure that both of you would, would say the same thing that lots of times in life you're sort of you're waiting like you're you know I, I just need to get that grant or I need to publish that paper or I need to get that promotion or I need to um you know get my driver's license or you know whatever it is that you're you're waiting for in the future and um it takes away from your appreciation of the uh the time that you're in right now i mean the best time of your life is probably when you're eight or nine years old and you have no worries but when you're eight or nine years old you can't wait to get your driver's license you can't wait to do all these adult things and um you know when you start your practice you can't wait to be whatever it is busier or um you know get that promotion get that grant become you know whatever it is that that, that you think is important to you and i think that um Although you know that intuitively, it's very hard to actually live your life that way and practice that way. And I think that um, being more aware of this stuff has helped me a lot in terms of just, yeah, enjoying the moment and being happy with how things are right now. You know, if you were able to go back in time and, and chat with yourself, give yourself some some advice, some sage uh, of thoughts, maybe when you're starting practice or as a trainee. What would you tell yourself? Um, well, I mean, I I would try and tell myself what, what I just said, try to enjoy where you are right now, because it's, you know, it's it's great. Um, and then the other is I I would I would tell myself to um ask more questions and that there's no stupid questions and not be afraid um to to sort of question things. I think that especially when you're junior, we tend to just accept the way that things are and that's the way that it is. And it very well may be that, that that's the right way. But I think a lot of times you, you, you don't ask questions, you do things because you think that's what you have to do. 
Um, and I think asking more questions, um, you know, would be helpful. So like the example is, you know, I, I, I just, cause we trained in, in an academic place. I just, I just assumed that, you know, working in an academic place is, is what you need to do to have a fulfilling career. And I think that if you ask, if I would have asked more questions, especially the people that weren't working in an academic place, I would have had a, a stronger appreciation that there's lots of different paths in, in surgery that are very rewarding. Um, and that, you know, you don't need to necessarily work at the quaternary center. There's lots of um, other very rewarding practices. And that's something that, you know, I realized through experience and through uh, going and helping out in, in Red Deer and working in a, in a non, you know, um, academic, quote unquote, academic center. And you realize that the the surgery and the care they give is every bit as good as 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 what they do in an academic center, and it's very rewarding. Um, so there's just lots of examples like that where I assume things, and I probably should have um, asked more questions and investigated a little bit more. Maybe other people are better at the, the, that than me, um, but yeah, that I would have asked more questions and been a little bit more critical in, in some of my assumptions. You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. If you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd love to hear your thoughts, comments, and feedback. So send us an email at podcast.cjs at gmail.com or tweet at us at CanJSurge. Thanks again.